Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in High Fidelity. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. We're waiting for our first guest, uh, BizPlay founder and CEO, Greg, Greg Luzinski. He's here to talk about the ability to provide point-of-sales financing with, with no integration. In, in other words, uh, and I find this a fascinating subject, um, one of the major selling points today is uh, if you have a... Um, a, a a product with a, a high re- retail rate is that you can save uh, 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 money by paying off on time. Uh, it's really a fascinating uh, subject, and I'm looking forward to hearing Greg. Ah, here he is now, and he should be. Greg, are you here? Well, he just hung up on us. I'm sorry about that. In the meantime, till we get him, I'm going I'm to play one of my better, better interviews from the prior show. Our next guest has written an extraordinary book, which I found extremely informative. Carmen Yadin, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. First, before we get into your book, and I'll let the the audience find out all about it from you, tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, so first things first, I'm an Israelian. I grew up in Israel. And, and basically, my background is, is totally not sales. I have an engineering background for uh, cybersecurity. Okay. okay. What uh, made you, first, what's the title of your book? How to Boom B2B Sales. Okay. How did you come to write the book? Well, I had a very long journey uh, in sales. Um, after I did some uh, engineering position, high-end engineering position, and decided that I want to move to the business side. 
moving to the business side was was really uh, um, changing concept, changing the way I think. You just changed for me. Uh, I, I, I took it step by step and and start doing sales was really hard and I, I I guess I don't have the natural skills like other people say that are needed for sales and uh, I learned how to do it and because I learned how to do it and because I do it quite good I decided to help people like me who wants to move to the business side who wants to make sales or that are doing sales and want to increase it dramatically the, the, themselves results so ba- so I learned that there is how to do it and and um, my skills and my experience and my approach are in this book well you say uh, you had to learn uh, new skills new ideas w- what are some of the things you had to learn so the main thing I I needed to learn is how to approach the right people when I want to perform a sales execution. And and uh, the most fascinating thing that I've learned is that it's no longer about me and what I need and I and how I I see things. I need to be focused on the on the other person that is sitting in front of me. And that's that's a huge change in concept. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that point. They say the first rule is find out what the person needs. But yes. But having said that, how do you find out what the other person needs? So first, you have to research. You have you have to be prepared. You have to come prepared to the meeting with the person that you're gonna meet with. You know there is everything is out there as social media. Uh, you have to l- learn about the company that you're gonna meet, the competition of the company you're going to meet, and the person that you're gonna meet. And you, it's it, it's very simple. You just need to ask during the meeting. Just ask. The, the more you ask, the better. The uh, more they learn. Well, what are some of the other things that you um, discovered that ma- makes you the successful salesperson you are? So first, I understand not to focus on what I need. I understand that it's everything about what my customers need. I understand that. Um, I don't need to focus on making the sales. Don't, although you know, all salespeople have to give, have quotes, and have to, and, and they measure about how much they sell and what's the execution they bring to the company. But what I realize is never to focus on the sale, never to focus on the sales execution. You have to. Greg, uh, am I? Uh, are you on? Yeah, I done. Yeah, I'm on. Okay, you're on a, di- on a different that. phone. Well, yes. We will start late, but um, we're going to start all over again. Uh, welcome to the program. Uh, but if you give me um, a few seconds, so uh, my engineer, when we uh, 
uh, fix this up, the first part will not be there. Um, how do you uh, uh, say your last names? Luzinski? Lashevsky. Lashevsky. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Now we're going to start all over again. Sorry about that. No, no problem. You know, we're going to start today's program with Biz, uh, Liz Pays, founder and uh, CEO, Greg, Greg Luzinski. Uh, these Polish names always get to me. What can I tell you? Uh, when I was a young, when I was a young man, we used to uh, go to the Polish National Home uh, on Saturday nights to to do po uh, uh, Polish pokers, and I've ne never had uh, more fun uh, than that. But anyway, Greg, welcome to the program. Uh, I want to talk first about your your personal background because you have a fascinating company that I want people to know about. Yeah, hey, Don, thanks for having me. Great great to have a chance to, to talk to you today. The, no, you know, my, my personal background is... Sorry? Go ahead. No, I'm interrupting you. Go right ahead. Your personal background is what we want to hear first. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, like many entrepreneurs, finished, uh, you know, finished school and and got my start uh, actually via consulting and uh, doing some systems consulting and ended up my client was in the credit card business, a, a high growth company in the 90s called MBNA. And, uh, you know, I thought it was just going to be a short stint. And I ended up actually joining and uh, joining the company uh, you know, directly and, and spent over 10 years there in a variety of a variety of operating and leadership roles, uh, including uh, leading a lot of their first generation e-commerce efforts. Uh, and then left there for for an opportunity with a startup in Baltimore uh, called Bill Me Later, which was an online finance pioneer, and spent uh, another eight years there, including through an acquisition uh, by PayPal in 2008. And suddenly I found myself in 2014 having spent 18 years in the consumer credit space and, and thought I had a pretty unique, pretty pretty big idea and wanted to uh, – you know, wanted to take a shot and strike out on my own and, and build a company from the ground up that that could serve uh, serve both merchants and consumers in the financing space. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting. Now, tell us about your company. Yeah, sure thing. So, BlissPay uh, exists to to really level the playing field as it relates to point of sale financing for for merchants, and uh, while doing so, empower consumers. Historically, financing programs like six months, no payments, no interest, uh, if paid in full or installments type programs, et cetera, are, are available in the marketplace, but typically only at, at retailers that have relationships with a few key uh, banks. And I thought there was an opportunity to really level the playing field and bring that value to small and medium-sized businesses so that they're not losing business simply because they have customers that might prefer or need to finance a product, uh, therefore limiting their options to, to traditional big box stores. So we, we thought by leveraging technology and, and obviously my, not just my background, but the team's background, we could, we could build a, a solution that worked uh, truly omni-channel, really leveled the playing field for small, medium-sized businesses, and uh, in doing so also empower consumers to have access to financing anywhere they want to shop.
Well, um, let me back up. I know, know you know what you're talking about, and uh, uh, I do because I read you, uh, some of your stuff. But essentially, what, what you what you're offering is uh, smaller companies the ability to offer six months interest-free um, uh, loan loans against uh, their purchases. Am I? Would that be uh, how you would sum it up? Yeah, Don, that's exactly right. It, it, it gives the Main Street bike store or bridal shop, et cetera, the opportunity to make six months uh, n uh, no payments, no interest product available to their customers uh, to complete a purchase for a given for a given product. All, all, okay. all by the way, at no incremental cost or, or no no real uh, integration effort. We make it quite simple. Okay. Um, uh, now, will you explain to our audience and to me, because I, I found what you want to do fascinating, and I, I absolutely know it's something that, that's uh, uh, really necessary in, in this world today. Uh, I go in, or well, you said a bridal shop. Um, uh, a young lady goes in there and, and um, wants to buy a 500 or $1,000, let's say $1,000 uh, dress. Um, uh, now, uh, she puts it on you. Now, how does it work? Uh, how does it, uh, what does the merchant do? What does the woman do? And what do you do? Yeah, sure thing. So the merchant, uh, you know, would establish a partnership with us and, uh, we would make merchandising material or signs available to them. So they would want to, they would want to put in their store or even outside their store, you know, social channels, et cetera. Uh, messaging that says, hey, you now can uh, take six months to pay off your purchase with us or you know, enjoy six months, no payments, no interest, plus, by the way, 2% cash back for the purchase of your bridal dress. And you know, they put signs up direct, you know, letting their, their customers know that the, the opportunity exists. Uh, that material also directs then the, the shopper, the young lady, to her mobile phone uh, to go to blisspay.com uh, to apply. Uh, and you know, the mobile phone was a key enabler for our for our product, and and from the from her own device, you know, in her own private enclave, you know, it, it can be publicly anywhere, but but very intimate still and dignified. She can apply for a BlissPay product, and uh, in less than five minutes uh, on her phone, usually about two and a half minutes, uh, find out how if she's been approved for a BlissPay account, uh, and if so, how much. And then she can use the, the BlissPay product, which is ultimately a digital, starts as a digital Visa card to complete a purchase with the with the store owner or, or sales associate. What BlissPay is doing is is underwriting the customer, uh, and then and then booking the account, and and then we'll track it ongoing, and and obviously have the billing relationship with with okay. the uh, with the customer. Um, I, I can, I want, uh, I'm going to repeat it back to you and make sure I understand yeah, sure. in uh, our audience. So uh, the young lady, she finds the dress, then she uses her smartphone to call a, a number or to go, they go online and fill out certain information. And then uh, uh, within three and a half or five minutes, uh, it comes back to the merchant. She has, in effect, a new card, a Visa card, that allows her to uh, purchase that uh, dress and not uh, pay it uh, for, for six months. Is that correct? Yeah, that's largely correct. She, she in fact, would fill out it, uh, the application through her phone. She, she wouldn't have to make a phone call 
um, but but the rest of it is correct. The actual decision process for us is you know 15 or 20 seconds. It's it's from learning about Bliss Bay, reading about it, filling in you know simple form that that takes about three minutes on average. Uh, so, but everything else was was spot on. So now she, uh, she has a new Visa card with uh, X amount of of, uh, um, uh, of credit, or the, is it just for that one item? No, she'll have she'll have uh, X amount of credit. So typically, it'll be more than someone needs uh, for their for their first purchase. Obviously, it depends on the purchase they're making. Uh, but but on average, it'll it'll be in the five or six thousand dollar range uh, that she'll have available with with her Bliss Pay Visa card. Okay, does she get, eventually get a real Visa card, or is it always on her phone? That's uh, the the former. She we will we support all form factors, so she we will deliver a physical Visa card, and if she's very uh, your mobile progressive, which she can put it into her mobile wallet of choice, uh, and the digital card will also always be available to her from from Bliss Pay's uh, website or, or mobile app. Okay, so so does she pay off some of it each month for the six? Is it a six month or is it a year? What is it? It's a six month program uh, on any purchase over one hundred ninety nine dollars, and most customers will pay it down every month up to the six month point. Uh, and the majority will pay it off in full uh, and enjoy enjoy the benefits of of our product. And uh, you know, a, a subset of of customers will will make a decision to to extend the terms longer, and and then they'll be uh, subject to uh, normal credit card billing. Every every you know, 25, 30 days, they'll have a statement and a payment due. Um, um, what is uh, what is the average interest rate if they don't pay it off in, in six months? Yeah, so our, we have a simple, uh, highly transparent pricing, which is 19.99%, uh, which is well below the market for, for store cards. If you go into your typical bigger box store and, and look to open up a, a store card product, a Home Depot card, a Best Buy card, et cetera, uh, that pricing tends to be in the mid 20%, you know, 25, 26, mm-hmm. 27%. So we're happy to put a product in the market at 19.99%, uh, which we think is you know, fair. And again, it's, it's a highly transparent pricing. It's the it's the first thing we show in our terms, so that people people know exactly what they're getting, what they're getting into. And for this, uh, and for the merchant, the advantage is that, uh, um, is that they're they're able to compete with the best buys of this world um, uh, um, on an equal basis. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. They're they're now able to to extend the same type of financing offer as as the as the larger stores are. Um, which is you know, which is a tool to help them uh, move more inventory and compete, uh, and and they get to do it for you know, little, to, you know, very little effort. Uh, you know, it's an agreement putting up some signs online. It's it would be banners if they're operating a smaller website, uh, and then because we process over Visa, there's no there's no change in how and how they process payments. So it, the money comes the next day or you know on two days, uh, depending on how they settle. Uh, they get funded right away, and, and then Bliss Pay bears you know, bears the risk on an ongoing basis. Hmm. So, so in, in effect, uh, but, but for you, you have the merchant there uh, helping you uh, um, sign up new credit card customers. How many of them, uh, on average, stay with you beyond beyond that and, and don't uh, close out the account 
afterwards? Yeah, great question. Yeah, it, to, to the first point, it is a mutually beneficial relationship. So we help merchants sell more goods, and 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 we acquire customers as a result of that. We have uh, at BlissPay, we have very high uh, reuse rates, uh, which which means a customer staying with us and using the product uh, again, which we think speaks to the empowerment aspect of, of not just giving someone another credit card, but really giving them a different type of credit card, one that has financing built into it, not just for that first transaction, but all subsequent transactions. Um, we also see, and this is, this is similar to our past, uh, my past life anyway, in online financing, which is consumers uh, go back to the merchant where they learned about us more often and actually reuse there as well to make a second or a third purchase. Obviously, it depends on the merchant type. So, uh, you know, the, the young lady example wouldn't necessarily go back and, uh, and buy another bridal dress, but someone who's shopping at a guitar store or a, a bike shop or a ski shop, a, a hand goods shop, et cetera, we're seeing good, uh, you know, good reuse rates for our merchants. Well, what's the downside? Let's talk first to the merchant. What's the downside? You know, because because of how simple we've made it and, and low calorie, the, the downside is is you know to, minimal to non-existent. So we don't heavily cumbersome contracting process. There is no real upfront cost. There is no incremental cost to to use the product. Uh, it, it it's it's very very little. I I only hesitate to say none because I'm sure someone will come up with some example, but the, you know, we see it as a super low risk activity and it, as easy as we make it to, uh, to put in place for, for a merchant, if, if a merchant's unhappy and, you know, I'm happy to say, you know, nine months in now, we, we haven't had this experience yet, but it's just as easy for a merchant to decide it's not working for them and, and to take us down or, or turn us off. Well, what about fraud? Um, uh, Someone walks in and has my social security number and it's the key information. Uh, well, we know that that's been hacked all over the place. They can walk out with the material, walks out with the $1,000 dress. Um, who's on the hook, you or the merchant? Yeah, so we, we, follow, we follow all the standard visa operating regs on on fraud and disputes and chargebacks and, and whatnot. If it's if it's someone as as Don as as you, uh, but in fact it turns out you didn't open the account yourself. That's the risk that that we pay, not not the merchant. Hmm. Um, spell out your website and how people can can reach you reach you. Yeah, sure. It's to learn more, you can go to blisspay.com. It's it's blisspay with one S. So it's B L I S P A Y dot com. Uh, and you can explore both the consumer side of our offering, but also there's a merchant section and and you can you can uh, learn a little bit more about how the product works. And the best way to to, to really get familiar with the product is to complete a simple merchant. Uh, a partnership form, and and you know, one of our folks will be in touch with you to walk you through the product, and 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 answer more questions in depth, and ideally help you get uh, started and set up. We've we've launched partners in as as, le- as little as an hour, uh, given how how simple it is to to put in market. Well, well one more question. Um, sure. Oh, uh, what percent? You take a percentage of the sale, like every uh, uh, credit card. 
But how do you compare with yes. the... Yeah, it's a great question, and that's that's one thing you know that we're proud of in terms of how we've built the product. So, when we talk about no incremental cost, there there truly is no incremental cost. So we, you pro, when you process a bliss pay transaction as a store as a storekeep, um, you pay the same uh, price for a bliss pay transaction as you do for any other Visa transaction on your uh, uh, through your store. Uh, you know, that pricing varies depending on the vertical you're in as well as the uh, as well as the agreement you have with your bank as a merchant uh, you know it, it averages you know, probably the two two to three percent depending on the merchant but uh, but we don't charge anything incremental for the value of for the value of financing um, I, I have to tell you I was when I saw the uh, saw the press release I was fascinated by Greg and I, I think you have an absolutely terrific product that um, every small uh, business retailer should definitely look at. I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, I'll, I'll ask you one more qu quick question. Uh, how do you deal? Sure. Well, uh, how do you help the, the merchant deal with fraud? So, the yeah we. From from a from a new customer perspective, we have quite sophisticated algorithms in place to prevent a fraudulent account from being open, and uh, and as a result, you know, we will limit certainly new account fraud for a merchant. They won't end up processing um, bad transactions with with a new BlissPay customer, which yeah, you know, which which our merchants appreciate. So that it's not one more thing they have to deal deal with, even if the financial burden wasn't going to be theirs to begin with. Obviously, the overhead and uh, the mental cycles it takes to deal with any sort of fraud is is uh, you know can be can be a burden that a, a small business center just doesn't really have time for. So we we really focus on on limiting the the initial fraud and and putting that on our technology to to keep it out of the store to begin with. Well, Greg, thank you for being with us today. Uh, uh, like I say, you've shown us something really terrific. And I hope our, uh, some people out in our audience take advantage of it. Yeah, Don, thank yeah, thanks so much for having for having me on and and expressing interest and uh, and for the discussion. I really I really enjoyed it, and yeah, you know, we hope to we hope to be able to uh, help your some of your listening audience. You know, really grow their business in a in a in a meaningful way. And and you know, as we talked about, they can check that out at at blisspay uh, com. Spell it out again for our audience. Sure thing. It's BlissPay, B-L-I-S-P-A-Y.com, BlissPay.com. Thank you, and have a great day. Thanks, Don. You too. Take care. Our next guest is, is someone that I've wanted to meet for a long time. He's the former mayor of Indianapolis, Greg Ballard. Welcome to the program. Don, thank you. It's good to be here. Well, good. Um, you, you don't realize it, but I've known about you for a while from, from various sources, and I'm lo really looking forward to this discussion. Oh, really? As the mayor or other things? As the mayor and some of the things that you've done, you have a new book out, The Ballard Rules, Small Unit Leadership. But uh, uh, well, I want to talk about that, about that and other things 
But first, uh, we always ask, I guess, one a uh, little bit about the personal background, and yours is fascinating. So give us a little bit about it. Sure. I, uh, I'm a native of Indianapolis. Uh, loved the city growing up. Uh, went to high school here. Uh, went to Indiana University. And then uh, in the late 70s, probably a, a bit of a different thing than other people did. I just up and joined the Marine Corps and um, went into Quantico and became a, was a Marine Corps officer for 23 years. Served in the Gulf War. A little bit of a Panama action when Noriega was happening. Uh, served in different places around the world. Had a terrific career, at least I thought so. Uh, went into, uh, after 23 years, I kind of felt like it was my time to, to leave and to move on. My kids were growing up. I wanted to spend some time with them and stabilize them in a high school. So I got out after 23 years, retired as a lieutenant colonel. I uh, was working in a corporate environment for quite a few years, pretty happy there, doing some good things, I think. Uh, and then uh, I just decided that I had other things I wanted to look at. And so um, at that time, I wrote the first edition uh, and uh, was doing a little bit of consulting. And then people completely out, uh, I was completely outside of the political system. Nobody really knew who I was at either party. And but I had people come say, you need to run for mayor. <laughs> I thought, well, where did that come from? Uh, but as I looked into it, it was probably was a good thing to be doing. Uh, and, uh, people were a little upset at that time at, at some things that were going on. And despite a extremely low budget campaign compared to my opponent, uh, I knocked on doors. I, uh, you know, I went to di- different business meetings. I uh, went to every group that I could, possible neighborhood groups and everything else. And you could still do that at the city level, even in a big city like Indianapolis. And Indianapolis is about the 12th or 13th largest city in America. So rather large city, but I was able to kind of be under the radar. By the time the election took place, uh, they were ready to go my way. So there's a huge upset in Indiana history. But uh, I got reelected, so I must have been doing something right. Uh, I had a great team. I was, I was very, very fortunate to have a great team. And uh, when I got done being the mayor, I thought it was time to um, republish the book with uh, some post-mayor comments because I, I still think the book is, is pretty good, and uh, that's why I was. Uh, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm trying to pass it on as, as best as I can. But I, I've been blessed. Uh, I've had 31 years of public service. I've been in some very difficult situations, some some good situations, uh, and you just kind of have to hold true to, to who you are and what you think is the right thing to do, and, and that's what I've done during all that time. So I just wanted to kind of help pass on that knowledge. Well, I know that. Now let's let's talk about uh, what are the Ballard rules and what are some of them that you want to pass on to our audience. Yeah, I I have the book primarily broken down into uh, realities, traits, and principles, but there were other things in there uh, also. But uh, one of the things that I was, one of the things I learned very quickly when I was in the Marine Corps, actually in officer candidate school, was that uh, people are looking at you uh, to lead them. Uh, I kind of had a light bulb moment there where I was uh, uh, in a temporary position as a squad leader, and I I was uh, the first I was trying to be the first at something, and when I uh, when it was pointed out to me that yeah I was I was there but my team wasn't there that's when I that's when I had a really a light bulb moment about leadership that I was no longer being judged on who I was I was being judged on how my team acts, and that was something that I held with me uh, through the whole time, and then as as you go along go along in the Marine Corps and have all these have knowledge and learn different situations be in tough situations. You, you kind of put some things together. And the realities 
are things I've read. I don't know how many leadership books, dozens upon dozens of leadership books. And mine is, as you know, designed for new to mid-level leadership, the junior leaders, if you will. And so you have to learn some things, and that's what I call the realities. Uh, and one of the ones that I really, it sounds very simple in its concept, but uh, you have to kind of lead by this, and that is everybody Everybody wants to be on a good team, and they're expecting you as a leader to take them there, whether they're at the top of the heap, whether they're in the middle of the pack, whether wherever they are in the, in the chain of the organization. They want to belong to something special. They want to belong to uh, a good organization, and I – I kind of always led by that. Uh, I always wanted to make my team, no matter whether it was three people, whether it was 7,000 employees of the of the city of Indianapolis, whatever it might be, I wanted my team to, to realize they were on a good team, that, that, that we're going to do this thing together and we're going to make some uh, make some good things happen. And I've always guided by that. And so everybody wants to be on a good team is something that, is, uh, that I've kind of held true to and I try to pass that on as best as possible. But it's up to the leader. It's absolutely up to the leader to make sure that your people, that your employees, whether your your teammates, whatever it might be, that uh, they're looking to you to make that place a good team. Well, that's uh, very true. <clears throat> well, but, uh, but it's interesting. I mean, uh, what you mentioned, uh, uh, the, the, the elite units like the Marine Corps um, very much is uh, – believes in that that's why it's such an effective unit but what's what did you learn from the marine corps that you were able to translate to the uh, to the smaller units um in effect did you learn that or or um where do you trans translate everything into a small unit yeah 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 really um it really does apply in uh and because whether you got five people reporting to you or, like I say, a, a big team, it's so, so much of this applies, but I'm, I'm, what I'm mostly worried about when, uh, for young junior leaders is that no one tells them. It's just the classic example that I tell them is when you're a good employee one day and everybody recognizes you're a good employee and then all of a sudden they want to promote you in charge of five or ten people and no one tells you that that game has changed. That's the point. That's what I'm trying to get across is that it's a different skill set. And so you have to think about things differently. You have to understand people. For instance, one of the realities that I talk about is that people do what they know. And as a leader, even as a junior leader, you may not understand uh, early on that not everybody knows what you know. And you have to you have to make sure that you, you train them that way. And you, and you have to make sure that... Uh, then you fill that gap, if you will, because I don't know how many times I got upset when I was a young leader that, wait a minute, he should be doing this, he should be doing this, she should be, why is she not going that direct? And then I realized they just didn't know something. They, they didn't know something that I thought they knew or should have known. And you have to, yeah, so you have to fill in that gap. Just easier, uh, some simpler things also that, you know, about defined standards. Uh, some people say they don't like standards, I don't want to be held accountable, I don't want this, but the fact is, Defined standards are easier for everybody uh, because the leader then puts out, uh, this is this is kind of what I'm expecting, this is where we need to go, and then for the for the employer or the teammate or whatever, they now know, okay, this is where I need to go. Uh, you know, we're from Indianapolis and we're not, uh, you know, we're not exactly fond of the New England Patriots all the time, as you may know, but the fact is, there's a there's an expectation of the New England Patriots, and that's why they win. 
all the time. That team is run differently than other teams. That's the sort of thing that on any level, just on a five- or ten-person level, makes a big difference. It really does make a big difference. And there are other things in there uh, that I think junior leaders really uh, need to know. For instance, when they make a change, when they do something, hey, we have to go in a little bit different direction. They have to understand that no matter what, if it's a good change, uh, there's always going to be some friction involved. There's going to be somebody that says, well, why are we doing this? Uh, did they do this because I was messing up or what? You know, whatever it might be. That, that's the sort of thing that is, you know, you won't find that in any typical leadership book. Uh, that any change, uh, no matter how good, uh, is going to create some friction in people. And one, one other thing that I really have to put out there is that uh, this is really hard to do. I certainly learned this in the Marine Corps, and I, I treated everybody from the from the general to the private uh, exactly the same. I, in the same tone of voice, I treated everybody with respect. And, and I think uh, sometimes when you're a leader, you forget that you've been put in that position because somebody trusted you, somebody liked who you were, and, and you were treating people with respect. So when you become that leader, still treat people with respect. Uh, whether they're you know, five levels above you, whether they're two levels below you, still treat people with respect and uh, talk to them in a, in, a, in a decent tone and be respectful of where they are. So those, and sometimes as a junior leader or a new leader, you, you lose sight of that because you're in a little bit more pressure in a situation you haven't been in before. You have to kind of stay steady with that sort of thing. So treating everybody with respect, I think, is one of those very, very important things I've been able to take from the Marine Corps uh, into my business life, into my uh, mayoral life, into uh, public uh, public life. All of that has been – all of those things that I just mentioned have been extremely important in uh, being able to uh, to run the city, to, to be successful in business and those sorts of things. Well, let me ask you a question. You, you've been in uh, military – You've been in uh, private life, and you've been in public life. Um, uh, and you've had to motivate people. Now, how do you motivate um, civil servants who, in fact, uh, are protected? Uh, what did you find different about them? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. As I uh, say in the book, you know, a lot of most of the people that work in a city and pretty much any city – they turn over from administration to administration, so as mayors or governors or whoever, as they turn over, most of the people kind of stay in place, like police and fire and um, and the public works personnel. Those folks kind of stay in place, and you kind of change the top layer and maybe the layer below that, uh, so one or two layers, and then, then you're off, right? And And you want to improve things, and... But you also, in my case, we had thousands upon thousands of employees who were doing it this way or that way, and primarily it was the right way of doing it. So how do you motivate them is really a, a good question. And, and I think it goes to one of the things I just said, that you treat them with respect. You, you communicate with them uh, what I call positively and proactively. You don't just say, here's where we're going to do it, deal with it. That is exactly the wrong thing to do. You sit down together, you listen to what they have to say, because – this happened to me, I don't know how many times as the mayor. We would sit down with some of the employees who had been there 15, 20 years, and frankly, they were frustrated. They said, you know, this is a better way of doing it. We just never had the authority to do that. And I can't – we saved a million dollars just rerouting the the, the, uh, the trash routes uh, because it just made a lot more sense to do it uh, like in a quadrant setting as opposed to running all over the city every day. Uh, it was It was amazingly simple. And a guy had the idea for like 10 years. All we did was listen to him and implement it. 
So I think treating people with respect, listening to them, communicating proactively what you know, where we want to go and what we're trying to do is extremely important for anybody in public life. If you just go in and try to hammer people and try to run over them, that's just not going to work. You have to really bring people in, bring them to the table, and, and listen to them well. And despite the fact that sometimes in the Marine Corps it's pretty fast moving uh, in tough situations, you still try to listen as much as you could. I can certainly remember in the Gulf War when uh, uh, the, uh, deciding which way to go uh, in 1991 uh, for the Marines. I, the, the leading general there, a wonderful guy, he got a lot of advice on how to do that. He's, he went around before they, before they made the, uh, the attack. How, how are we going to do this? We did that in the city. I learned a lot from just looking at that. And we learned, so we would sit down with people and say, what do you think? And then if it was, if we heard, uh, I will tell you one thing I did, I did listen, learn a long time ago was that when everybody says, this is the way we've always done it, that's when my antenna goes up. Then if that's when I know something's probably wrong and probably not being as efficient uh, and as effective as possible. And so, but we would listen well, we would listen and we yeah, got a lot of ideas, good ideas from the civil servants, uh, and we were we were just in a position to implement them. And so, you learn that along the way uh, in the Marine Corps and in the business, and I was able to bring that into public service, and and I think it was very effective. I mean, I my uh, my numbers, my positive numbers were really strong in the city even when I left, and so I was very happy about that. And I think that's because people knew we were trying to do the right thing. I think we communicated that very well, but that's that's something you have to learn along the way. Definitely. Well, what do you do with someone who won't listen? You know, leadership. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, right? And and it depend and in public service, it, it does depend. I mean, if they're just not going to do it, um, you know, especially you know in small business, when, when you're talking about small businesses too, and there's a lot of right to work states and that sort of thing. And Indiana is one of those right to work states. No, I mean you can you can do that if you if you have to. Some some people have union protections and that sort of thing. You don't really want to do that though. I mean you want to bring people along if at all possible. However, if they don't, then what you do, and, and they're protected and they haven't done anything necessarily wrong that would uh, that was morally wrong or ethically wrong or anything like that, then you just kind of put them in a position where they can do some work and probably with what what you would consider their skill set at that time. But uh, if, if you're in a small business though and they're not really Taken hold, you have, you may have to make that tough call. And uh, as I, I said in my, as I say in the book, you live with a bad personnel decision for a long time. You really do longer than if if you let the person go. Uh, it was never our intent to let people go. Uh, unfortunately, you have to sometimes, uh, both in business and in government. But you, that was really never an intent. The intent is to listen as best as possible, try to tell them here's where we need you to go, and and uh, and get them and motivate them to do that. And if they don't, if they're not able to do that, then depending on their employment status, you have to either, you know, take that step, or you have to make sure that uh, you put them in a position where they're not going to really affect the the larger movement, the more positive movements that are going on. So that's really uh, that's what you could do. But uh, as I've said it, uh, I don't know how many times I've said it uh, that you re- you have to be really careful on your hiring and your firing because it's uh, it's critical. You really want to vet people not uh, really well. You want to make sure they know things and know what you expect right off the bat, uh, and then lead them appropriately. But um, uh, if you if you make a bad call in that regard, you live with it for quite a long time. You really do. Well, let me ask you. Um, um, I, I'm, we're, we're we're talking 
with uh, former Indianapolis Mayor Greg Ballard, who's got a book, The Ballard Rules, which I strongly uh, urge people to read, small unit leadership. Um, uh, in all of this, if, if so I were to ask you, what would be the three things you tell a small business leader you learned that you'd love, like to pass on? You said three things? So three, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about 50, but I always try to limit it yeah, to three. Yeah. Well, there, there's a, you know, I, I break it down pretty, uh, pretty dr- uh, directly. And, you know, one of the, one of the things we certainly learned uh, in the Marine Corps, and it, it really did apply, you know, what, what really is leadership? What are you really trying to do? And I, I would suggest to people, uh, certainly for a, a new leader, a junior leader, somebody who's new to uh, leadership, uh, that you are there to get the job done. That's one thing. You have to understand you're not there because you're a nice person. You're not there um, you know, because you look good. You're there to get the job done. And those above you who placed you in that position are expecting you to get the job done. But also, that works in concert with taking care of your people. You have to make sure that your your people understand what's going on, that you treat them with respect, um, that they understand their role in it all, and that you all work as a team, that you do it together. Certainly, I think a, a management uh, management rules, if you will, over the last 20, 20, 30 years have really gone to the team concept even more so than than they had before. And I and I agree with that concept that, uh, that they have to work together. So you're there to get the job done, but you also have to take care of your people. You have to communicate really, really well with them. Uh, so I, I think that is. Uh, two things right off the bat that are extremely important to them. And, and they're, they're also what I call indicators of effective leadership. So you can rate yourself. And I suggest that you should rate yourself. Uh, are, are things getting done? And, and uh, some indicators of effective leadership is what I call proficiency. Is, is the team getting the job done? Do they know the job? One, another one is organi- what I call organizational discipline. Uh, if you are not there, if the leader is not there, is the job still getting done? If you're on vacation, if you had to take a day off, is everything still going to work well? And the other piece is high morale. Uh, do they have a positive state of mind? Are they really proud to be part of the team? And if you have those three working in concert, proficiency, organizational discipline, and high morale, you're probably doing a really good job as a leader. Uh, they, but they have to work in concert with each other. So you have to be able to judge yourself in that regard. I mean, you can have high morale, but that may be because everybody's just kind of messing around and not really getting the job done. So you can't uh, you can't have that. They all have to work together. But I think looking, you know, what is what are you really trying to do? You know, a leader is uh, the essence of what they do is influence. You're supposed to influence a group of people to get a desired outcome. And when you lay it down in simple terms like that, I think that helps young leaders, new leaders, uh, understand that that's why they were chosen to, to get something done. And they were chosen. They had good character and they showed good traits and some great principles to get in that position and just keep be who you are, but understand that you're there to get a job done uh, also. So those are, those are some th- basic, very basic things that sometimes people don't go. And the, the reason I, I say it like that is I find in most organizations, in most small businesses and, and uh, nonprofits and things like that, there really isn't any leadership training. There's there's nothing going on, and my book is designed to kind of fill that gap. And you know, as you know, it's a short book, but it's, it's designed to fill that gap, uh, so that they uh, just to get them on the page. 
to make sure that they can do the right thing for their organization. And, and there's some really basic things in there right up front in my book that would help them get there. <laughs> I, I asked for it and I got it. Now, look, you've yeah. had three careers. Now, what are you, gonna, what are you doing for your next career? Uh, I don't know. That's a that's a really good question. I like to think that I'm doing some good work here. I'm doing some uh, work in the community uh, on women in tech initiatives because uh, you may know that there's uh, uh, not enough tech workers into the future, and we need to get more young girls and, uh, and young women uh, heading into that field. So I'm doing some of that work. I'm doing some work on energy also. Um, so, yeah, we're going to look at that also. And I'm also uh, – as Former mayors and former governors and people do. They, I'm also at a university, University of Indianapolis, uh, a great place. I'm doing internships with students down there. I'm helping professors. The archives for the Indianapolis mayors are down at the University of Indianapolis, and I'm helping with them also. So I do feel like I've just started my life over again. I really do. <laughs> and it's, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, kind of, I, I, I'm kind of jazzed. It's, uh, I'm having a lot of fun uh, doing all these different things, um, you know, I was all in as the mayor. All I was uh, 28 years. I was in 24/7 uh, the whole time, and I got and frankly I got a little tired mentally and physically tired, and so uh, I took a little bit of a break. And now, uh, thankfully, somebody still wants to have me around, and I like to think that I'm doing good work around here in Central Indiana. People seem to um, want to use my services. I, I certainly do know quite a few people in the community, and I, I can connect some people together in, in advance of these goals. And people ask me to do things. Uh, you know, all the time. Uh, for instance, I'm I'm on the board of the Women's Fund here in Indianapolis. Also, I just just a lot of things like that in the city. It's not it's not. I mean, I had 31 years of public service, but I feel like even now, I'm giving back even more because I'm able to at a different level. Well, you interest me in one thing. You say you're helping a young girl with science. How are you doing that? Well, we, uh, I'm working with a, uh, a great company called Guggenheim Life and Annuity, and they're, they're in all 50 states, but they're headquartered right here in a suburb of uh, Indianapolis uh, in Carmel, Indiana. And terrific Guggenheim Life and Annuity, and they are, are funding uh, robotics uh, for, uh, for children with an emphasis uh, on, uh, on young girls. Uh, they've been doing that. We're having what we call a STEM day so that middle school girls can uh, see role models uh, that they can go into these these occupations and they can be accepted in these occupations. We want to make them feel good about that sort of thing. And the other piece that we're doing is um, uh, we're really helping women in career transition so that if you're maybe you're selling real estate and you're figuring out that's maybe not be what you want to do and you want to go into the tech field, we're going to provide funding. We have some training partners that we're working with and we're going to help those women maybe in their 20s, 30s, or 40s transition from one career into the IT field or tech, tech fields uh, and help them do that. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's really kind of revolutionary. Uh, we're figuring out how to do that, and we're going to be doing some pilots on that here shortly. We've been working on this for six to eight months, quite a, quite a while now, to do this. And the other good thing is we've, um, in pursuit of helping all of these goals, we are we're having an actually an LPGA, a women's a pro women's golf tournament here in Indianapolis called the uh, Indianapolis Women in Tech Championship, and we're having that in September, early September of, uh, of this year, 2017, and bringing the championship to Indianapolis to help promote women in tech. So we're uh, we're doing a lot in that regard. We've got a lot of things going on. Guggenheim has been a great partner with that, and, and we've been able to uh, to move that forward. 
Well, the reason I ask is, you know, I'm on the board of the National Robotics Education Foundation, and that one of our goals is exactly that about encouraging women. We should talk uh, off uh, off this program about that, about working together. That's uh, you know, the we uh, we did something special here in Indianapolis when I was the mayor. We we uh, we had like seven or eight teams in the area doing robotics. High schools were doing robotics, and we I just decided to have a a championship, a city championship. And I got uh, I got a great funder, Roche Diagnostics, great company here, funded it initially, and we got. I, in the first year, I got 30 new high schools doing robotics. Now everybody in the area does robotics. I mean, everybody in the area does robotics, and this is uh, we're using the VEX platform, VEX Robotics, and uh, it's been a tremendous success, and the state has now copied what we did, and they're doing it uh, statewide, again, using Guggenheim uh, as, as a partner, and it's been tremendous that way. And, and you may not know this, Don, but I'm, in the, uh, I'm actually in the VEX Robotics Hall of Fame also, so... Uh, I think I'm the only office holder with that designation. It usually goes to scientists and those sorts of people, but uh, they've been really good to me and they've, they've helped us out quite a bit. But we just we have exploded robotics uh, in the state of Indiana, and it's 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 re- really large here now. Well, yes, you you have down in one of the community colleges, the Ward uh, Professor Ward, who's one of the top people. And anyway. Uh, we should do this off. Um, I'm going to uh, ask your PR person to uh, to send sure. on my email, and we should talk further. Uh, but uh, sure. yeah, I th- I'll tell you, it's been a great uh, opportunity with you, talking with you. And, uh, again, we're talking with Mayor Greg Ballard. Uh, he's got a new book, The Ballard Rules. I assume we can get it at Barnes & Noble and every, wherever good books are sold. Yeah, Amazon.com, Barnes, yeah, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, any of those places. Will, yeah, absolutely. So, it's really, okay. And I think it's a good read it's for the for the audience that we've been talking about. I think it's a good read for them. Well, well I can echo that. Uh, again, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm I'm sure our audience got a lot out of it. I know I did, and I'm being very selfish. So, but thank you, Greg, <laughs> for being with us. All right, Don. Appreciate it very much. Have, have, a good, have a good day. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and profits. Thank you for listening. And we'll